Welcome to the Second in Command podcast, produced by the COO Alliance and brought to you by its founder, Cameron Harold. In the Second in Command podcast, we talk to top COOs who share the insights, strategies, and tactics that made them the chief behind the chief. And now, here's your host, Cameron Harold. Our guest today is TerraCycle's Chief Administrative Officer, Richard Pearl. Richard joined TerraCycle in 2008 and has overseen strategic partnerships, investor relations, capital raising, and the company's international growth from one to 20 plus countries. He's worked within the green business world for 35 years in a range of industries. Richard is a founder of Social Venture Network and Threshold Foundation and has an undergraduate law and business degrees from Columbia University. Richard, I am really looking forward to speaking with you today. Thanks for being on the podcast. Very happy to be here. Yeah. So, so why don't you tell us how you got involved in TerraCycle? Because you came into the organization when it was completely different. Do I have my memory correct that when I read about it back then, it was like worms in a box? Correct. Worm poop. Uh, the initial business was fertilizer right. uh, made from compost, uh, turned into what was called like a tea for plants. Um, and uh, Tom figured he could get paid to take the waste, make a product from it and get paid again. Um, and since he saw when he was at Princeton, he dropped out to start the company, uh, a lot of waste in food from the eating halls. Uh, he had this brainstorm that uh, when he learned about uh, worm poop being a great fertilizer that he could conquer that. And, and he went into it with business plans while a student and kept winning the business plans first place, even won one for a million dollars. And he just said, I'm just gonna quit school and go do this. Did not awesome. accept the grant because it wouldn't that giving up the idea. So um, he's been fascinated by waste ever since. And obviously the focus of the company evolved right around the time that I came. Now, when you got involved in the company, so many, so many stories along along the way. You hear of entrepreneurs and entrepreneurial companies getting told no and getting told, you know, there's all these hurdles. And he was getting the early success and the early accolades. Did you get hit with some early struggles as well as you were joining the organization? <laughs> you must have. Yeah. Well, number one, I met him at the end of 2007. Okay. Um, in 2008, uh, when I joined the company, their financial markets got bad. Uh, 2007, the company lost, um, you know, had $12 million of expense and uh, $7.5 million of revenue, meaning it burnt through the $5 million of uh, equity it had brought in and investors weren't happy. But it was in that period that Tom iterated the change from being a worm poop company and making products from waste to being a recycling company that could deal with volumes, recycling the non-recyclable pens, toothbrushes, candy wrappers, juice pouches, etc. And it was in that change that he implemented which was not what invest, it was not the company investors had invested in. So we right. could understand their disappointment in the immediate results and in uh, change in business. Fundamentally, um, I think they're pretty happy with what he turned it to do, but it was losing money at the time. And because of the 2008 financial crisis, it was not an easy time to raise money. So there were, that was a very tough moment to join. And that's when he, he met me, he asked for some help. I thought it would be a six month uh, engagement of advising him on the side. And uh, it's now 14 years. 
This sounds kind of like my story at 1-800-GOT-JUNK. I got involved to help Brian for a few months and coach who was my, he was my best friend at the time. And it turned into a, a great seven year run for us. What was it that you saw that had you say yes to helping him with some consulting or was it just a consulting gig or was there something about the business that you liked? An unpaid consulting gig. He couldn't afford to pay me. Fortunately, a company that I had taken, a clean energy company I'd taken public on the London alternative investment market got a tender offer from a large company um, because it had built wind and hydro that they wanted in their portfolio. So I was able to work for free for some time for Tom and for some equity, but I wasn't on the company books in the beginning. What got me to do it? I met him in November of 2007 at the 20th anniversary of Social Venture Network, which is now called Social Venture Circle. Um, And he spoke after me. I was doing a eulogy for one of our early members, Anita Roddick, who founded The Body Shop. And um, he spoke after me and I had goosebumps. So when he looked me up and said he could use my help, uh, came into the city and saw me, I, I said, I was really blown away by your presentation. What do you need? And he explained his situation and asked if I could help. And I said that I would. So um, that was, I, I knew intuitively that the message was this may be a hard thing to do, but do it. And that's generally how I make my decisions. I do have law and business degrees. I'm a member of the New York Bar, but my greatest intelligence is intuition, as long as it's also grounded in, in, in you know, rational consideration. Um, but I, I, my, I had high resonance would be my words on give this person some support. It's a good thing to do. It's worthy and it's what you're here for. So I, I follow so we're clearly going to talk about TerraCycle and, and what you've built in your role there. But I want to go prior to that and go back to um, when you started the Social Venture Network. What was that all about? Uh, Social Venture Network in 1987 was formed with a you know group of friends um, that is a network of business people who see business as a means of doing good in the world, as well as making money. Every dollar is a vote every dollar spent. And so the notion that you're going to be able to create a response commensurate with the task. I mean, our view was business as usual is a prescription for disaster, but that the only way to change the world was to make business work better. And it's become the whole world of impact ESG businesses. Now B corporations came out of that organization and that community that business the purpose of business was also to be a good citizen actor as well as to make money, but compete with pathos, ethos, values, and 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 respect for the earth and sustainability for the environment, um, but also for the respect of people, minority shareholders. It wasn't extract, exploit, and, and pollute, but a different vision for the world to be incorporated into business. Back then in 1987, it seemed, uh, you know, people laughed at us and part of the group were Ben and Jerry, friends today, um, you know, Gary of Stonyfield Farms, Wayne Silby of uh, Calvert Group, first kind of socially screened mutual funds. So that community emerged and we, got together and spawned other organizations like Net Impact, which is on over 500 MBA campuses and um, called Students for Responsible Business at the time, um, Business for Social Responsibility, a whole kind of ecosystem developed and out of that grew some, I think the ESG movement from today. So I've been fortunate to be part of that from its very early days and have worked with companies um, in various aspects of that emerging sector. 
that was just not the era back then. Like 1987, I, I remember it really well. I was in the second year of running my first business. I had, I had about 20 employees. I was 22 years old. Um, that was back in the, the Gordon Gecko Wall Street era. That was the greed is good era. That was when it was when, indeed when Donald's book, the uh, whatever, the art of the game or whatever. Art of the, the deal. Art of the yeah. deal came out. That was when I first decided I didn't like him was when I, I read that book and the gold faucets turned me. I was a kid from Northern Ontario. So, um, but that social enterprise didn't even enter my lexicon until I don't know when the hell it was. It was Bill Strickland from the Bidwell Corporation was the first one that I got exposed to in a social enterprise world with his TED talk that he did from 20 years. He had Herbie Hancock playing behind him. So did that, did, did the social enterprise or the social venture, was that something that attracted you to TerraCycle because they were doing something with the environment or doing something for good? Well, let's just say that I was interested in all things that could make the world a better place through business. Mm -hmm. I had spent two years in the nonprofit world between college and then grad school, law school and business school. I realized I was preaching to the converted that my skills and greatest contribution for making the world a better place would be through transactions and business. And I developed kind of a career for myself by working largely as a fiduciary um, with multiple social venture companies in and out of that network. Um, and so when I met Tom, and again, my plate kind of freed up because something I'd worked on for some years uh, got a tender offer and, and I had some time. But when he asked, I said, I'm here to help. I had some other things I was doing and it took me a little while to, to extract myself from those. But, um, you know, Tom and I took time to get to know each other. And, and the more I learned about him, the more I got that this is a person who deserves support, who could lead things to greatness that was certainly smarter than me. I'm pretty smart by most people's standards, but you know, I would say Tom is super smart, smartest person I've ever met. And I'm on my toes when I am working with him um, every day any, and, and anything I write, anything that I communicate comes with a degree of precision and, 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 and attention um, because those are the standards he sets for himself and, and I choose to meet them. So we know why you got attracted to the organization and where, where you and he kind of attracted each other. Um, talk to me first about, about how you navigated the 0809 global financial crisis. Well, you were already, uh, you were already burning money too at that point, right? Correct. It really was, you have to build the revenue. Um, and obviously we brought costs down. People were, pay, were paid below market salaries. Um, in some cases, equity was handed out uh, before I got there, um, it, it, you know, like monopoly money. Um, most of that has gotten all cleared out because of vesting and, and you still had to pay for your stock options at some point and the company wasn't in the money then. Um, it is now. Um, but what I would say is, the navigation was raising the last, the last time we raised capital into the parent company was in 2009, 2010. We needed wow. cash. Uh, we have raised money through subsidiaries. In other words, of the 20 subsidiaries, TerraCycle Japan, TerraCycle France, UK, Belgium, Netherlands, Sweden, TerraCycle Canada. We've sold minority interest to strategic partners between 2010 and, and 2019. However, um, the... Uh, parent company has not had any new investment since 2000, that 2010 raise. And raising it took a lot of work and a lot of time. 
but we brought in $6 million, which was transformational to the company. Uh, we brought in a superlative CFO. We had a very sharp person before who was more of a, you know, Wall Street financially trained person, Stanford MBA, but in terms of a CFO who could really build margin into everything, do the forward planning and guide and mentor the company to where it needed to be. We were very mm -hmm. blessed to bring in Javier Daly, who spent 20 years at P&G in finance and also worked at um, you know, um, DHL and, and a few other uh, great firms. So um, I'd say the financial management really helped turn it around. The capital helped turn it around. And with the support from Javier, myself and others, Tom was just able to flourish. And once he got clear on that business plan, the key was convincing the people who pay us to collect waste, which are brands. They pay us to collect waste streams where the waste stream is so cheap pens, toothbrushes, candy wrappers, juice pouches, lipstick, coffee capsules, contact lenses, cigarette butts, dirty diapers. The value of the material is when you recycle it is worth less than the cost of collecting, sorting and recycling. That's why no one else recycles it. Sure, sure. The only things that have inherently positive, and you know this, economics for recycling are glass, paper, certain metals like beer cans, and certain plastics like water bottles. Everything else goes to incineration or landfill or ocean. And, and the point is Tom's masterpiece was somebody will pay me to recycle a pen, a cheap pen. It's probably Bic or Sharpie. Okay. And somebody will pay me to do beauty care. And it's probably L'Oreal or Estee Lauder or someone like that. And someone else will pay me to do this because the world is moving to the point where just putting, turning people into a polluter by selling them something they don't want a package, they want the content. And you're making them buy a package, use once discard, repeat, use once discard, repeat, but you own that ice cream container, though you wanted the ice cream, not that piece of cardboard with plastic on the inside, but we're all forced to be polluters. We don't want to call ourselves polluters because we mm. have no choice. That choice is coming through our new venture loop, um, where everything will come like Milkman model in a durable package that gets washed and refilled by the brand, consumer just borrows it and gets their money back, their deposit back. But while we're in a use once discard repeat world and in the transition to a durable reusable system, right? There's a lot of waste that's going to landfill that can have a second life, but someone has to pay the difference between the value of the recycled material and the cost of collecting, sorting and recycling and our margin. And we started going after brands and Tom was able to sell this first to, you know, craft foods for Capri sun pouches and, and, uh, you know, uh, yogurt containers from Stonyfield Farms. But now we have hundreds of brands and hundreds of retailers working with us in 20 countries and we margin well. And Tom is consistently looking at new models of how do we iterate doing the right thing with your waste and making it worthwhile for someone to pay us to do post-consumer collections of waste streams that have their names on it or have their competitors' names on it. Um, and they then become sort of the eco leader enabling people to just buy content and not pollute, even though the packaging gets recycled. It's not as good as reuse, but it's a major step forward from every scientific carbon energy foot, you know, footprint. Does it, is it kind of a guilt tax on some of these major brands that if they don't support this kind of a model, they're going to get ostracized by their buyers or by the press and 
you know, not, not, not that there would be any, I don't um, think there is motivated by guilt. I can't say that there isn't an element that might be, it's less in our messaging. It's more about, look, every company has a sustainability mandate and right. every company yeah. has a sustainability department, but most of them don't have budget. Who's got budget marketing. Yeah. And what do they spend it on maintaining and growing sales and market share? We say, give us some of your marketing budget and we will use it to run authentic post-consumer collection programs nationally. We don't own trucks. We use UPS in the US and Canada, Royal Mail in the UK, Sagawa in Japan, but we will run authentic post-consumer collection programs and tell people that you're sponsoring them. And as a result of that, their consumers get engaged yeah. and others may switch to them. So I think it is less about guilt and much more about if we can achieve with the money that we have to spend the same consumer and customer engagement. Here's a good example when I say customer, because that's the retailer for a brand, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. If we do collection programs, say, of toothbrushes at Walmart, and we do, not year round, people don't just bring in a used toothbrush or 10 of them. They buy things and right. not just oral care. They buy everything. Right. What does Walmart want in the age of Amazon foot traffic? What does Walmart do? It rewards Colgate with extra shelf space and end caps. <laughs> That's this is a great. key program. It doesn't mean people are buying more toothbrushes. This is great. So this is really what Tom likes to call outsmarting waste. And we basically take a vicious cycle to the bottom and turn it into a more virtuous cycle where everyone wins, including the environment, except for the landfills, yeah, which yeah. shouldn't exist. They should be an anomaly in history. Nature can't digest what we put in landfills. And so ultimately, we need to iterate our way out of it. Um, and that's really what Tom was able to do. It's not guilt as much as people, I think, don't really like to be contributing with their name. What's the brand got? Its name. Its name's all over its package. Right. To have landfills and streets with their name on it is not glamorous. Yeah, so not. I think this, this is more about who do we really want to be? And increasingly, who do our customers demand that we be? And that's that's the... It's, it's interesting. We, when we were building 1-800-GOT-JUNK, someone asked me one time if we ever would expand to somewhere like India. And I said, no, there's no waste. Like you, you can't there isn't really landfills of stuff that has any value and, and almost everything we ever haul away for got junk. There's value in that stuff. There is, there is another use case for all that, those things. All right. So, so you joined TerraCycle. How many employees were there when you got there? And I also want to learn a little bit about this brand with these strategic partners, but give us a, some perspective on, on the size of the company today and how many were there when you got there. I think we were about 40 people when I got there in 2007, all operating in the one company that was operating exclusively in the US. Uh, today, we are about 450 employees with almost 100 open positions. We've grown wow. by 150, 200. I think people are uh, increasingly just wanting to come out of this pandemic saying what and, and evidence of climate change saying, what can I do to reduce my footprint? And I want to recycle where I can. Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, that's, that's the size of, of growth in, in terms of employees. Uh, about a hundred of that 450 are employees of our um, uh, spin-off loop. Loop Global Holdings, 
uh, which now is opening in six countries. Uh, next week will be uh, Kroger uh, in the U.S. We're already open in uh, Carrefour in France, Tesco in the U.K., and Aeon, largest retailer in Japan. And what um, does Loop do? Uh, well, Loop is the durable package system. But just to be clear, TerraCycle manages it and owns about 80, 78% of it, right? Um, it's just Loop is a reuse platform with separate investors and separate P&L, separate staff, um, but operated by TerraCycle. We own, we founded it, we, we principally own it, and uh, we, we are managing it through our senior staff, overseeing full-time employees of about 100 um, in, in the countries that I mentioned, where we also have TerraCycle offices. Why, why the different models like this? Why the different financial models versus running everything under one company? Is it because you're global? Are there incentives for tax? Is it because you can raise money differently? What's the... All of the above, right? I mean, one, with Loop, we were not... Loop's going to take some major investment uh, to roll out, particularly with the pandemic creating delays and openings. We should have been in Tesco in the UK in March of 2020. The event was planned, uh, 800 people had signed up and we had to cancel it because of the pandemic, right? I had my tickets booked. Um, so they launched now 18 months later in September of 2021. So, I mean, there's costs of having people on staff before the revenue comes in, but the delays were COVID related. We have investors. Um, those investors include two of the world's largest consumer products companies, as well as some family offices and some venture money and a couple other strategics. So, you know, that was one piece. So you wouldn't call it a subsidiary, even though we own most of it, we get most of the, uh, you know, have most of the equity. Um, you know, we did, because we operate in 20 countries, create TerraCycle US, TerraCycle Canada, TerraCycle mm and TerraCycle France, et cetera. So we, each country has that. And that's a tax issue because, you know, the the, the French could claim a, p a bigger piece of, uh, you know, um, the UK's earnings because the French had this or the UK, the Dutch could claim some French earnings. It's just much cleaner in an international structure to have one specific company to which direct really related income and directly related um, expense is allocated and you get, it's been advised by tax advisors, much better to do that. So we have an international structure that is, is tax efficient, but not tax avoidant um, and compliant with all, and we pay all our taxes, but we do have a number of entities through which we conduct. And yes, we did sell um, as indicated uh, earlier, uh, interest in our minority, uh, some of our minority companies. So TerraCycle Japan is owned 20% by a $50 billion Japanese company. Uh, TerraCycle France, UK, Belgium, Netherlands, and Sweden is owned 30% um, by Suez, which is merging with Veolia. So that'll be a 50 billion euro company. So we do have strategic partners. Um, in, in a variety of, of, of companies owning minority and we control all. But that structure um, is, 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 you know, still these are companies that are controlled by TerraCycle um, and we work close, you know, closely with, with those partners uh, to get the benefit of their expertise and larger operations. And I'm I'm going to loop to um to link to Loop in in the show notes. It's uh, the URL is Loop Store. Um, and I just 
kind of started, my ADD kicked in and I had to figure out what Loop Store was, but it's a really interesting model. You're buying packaging or buying the product in packaging, but then the packaging ends up going back to the store or whoever ends up getting refilled and and it, your recycled pack. So like you're getting your Haagen-Dazs ice cream in a little metal container instead of getting it in cardboard that's just getting thrown out. Is that right? It's right. The better URL is explore loop. Explore it's loop. a more explore loop. Um, dot com. Um, but you have it right. Uh, the package is owned by the brand. When the manufacturer owns the brand, there's built-in sustainability. Why? Well, if a milk bottle costs $10 and you get 10 uses, it's you know a dollar use. If you get 100 uses, it's 10 cents a use. When you're going to own it, you build it to last. When it's single use, it becomes a cost of goods sold to the manufacturer. And so what, is the, what does the consumer get? They get a use once discard repeat model that um, is pretty unfortunate for the planet. Um, and so giving them a better package and letting them put a deposit down because they have to have an incentive to return it. It's a valuable piece of material. The current package you see on there for Haagen-Dazs is stainless steel, but they're coming up with gorgeous packaging for future ones. And in Japan, brands are already developing internet of things enabled packaging. So the packaging of the future wow. will evolve. And again, all of it will be um, you know, free to the consumer, but for a deposit, which comes back uh, after you return it to any of many locations, you could buy it at the, uh, at, at the store, return it at Burger King, McDonald's have joined and Tim have Hortons you, have joined. Uh, have, you heard of, have you heard of Plastic Bank at all? Of course. So David, David Katz, the founder, he and I are friends from Vancouver. He's, yeah. he's onto some pretty cool stuff. It'd be interesting for them to get involved with, um, with Loop to have a lot of the plastic become the containers for a lot of this like that would even you know take the plastic out of the oceans and put it into this model so okay the growth and and the, the law where has law helped you in your role how do you use it you know today are you are you the chief legal counsel as well okay or? so so ah not laws in terms of how TerraCycle operates because we work within the law um but there's not laws driving no i mean those. being a lawyer how, how is you being yeah let me put it this way I did um, law school while being a social activist. I still had throughout law school, my nonprofit staff working for me and doing the work that we were doing. But I will say I did five years and three um, and did business during the summers after first and second year law. And it was intense. It was Columbia. But what I can tell you is I always knew I wanted to do social change business. And I learned more business in law school than I did in business school. I learned a lot in business school, but figuring out how to use the law and understand a corporation, understand tax, understand structure has been core to what I've done in my work, my aspect of business. And again, you know, I work with great CFOs who handle the financial side. I can understand it, but that's not where I put my emphasis. I'm at the nexus of business and law, right? Mm -hmm. We have a general counsel, um, uh, who, like Tom, is is Canadian, um, and um, uh, but also American in this case, and uh, not Tom's. He's also Hungarian uh, with a green card. But what I want to say is the law, right? The, the legal department feeds into Dan Rosen, and Dan reports to me. So I'm with him mostly on the complex legal things. We oversee the global structure together. But every, he deals with all of the contracts, and I deal more with investors, strategic partnerships. So I think what I'd say is I think that my legal training 
has helped me enormously because I'm dealing with lawyers several times a day at top firms across the world, whether it's intellectual property, whether it's investment related, whether it is um, M&A, um, we have so many things that to conduct the business, either Dan or I, or one of our um, associate general counsel that report to Dan um, deal with. And, and uh, um, I, I, I think that my legal background enables me to do my job as chief administrative officer, a title that I don't love, but um, because it's not really about administration, but in the C-suite and the board insisted I back in 2010 that I have a, a, a C title. You know, I, I definitely did not, wouldn't qualify to be chief financial officer, and I don't do ops. I'm far more legal negotiation. When the negotiation comes up, Tom will usually figure out what he wants and talk it over with me and say, now you take it from here. When investors call or people want to do certain things or we're looking to develop new businesses and make relationships, you know, Tom from the business side kind of knows what he wants and it comes to me for mm -hmm. structure. We're looking to buy companies now where we've got money in the bank. We're looking to grow. We're raising more money right now. And all of that um, bringing in the capital, but also the M&A side is my responsibility. And again, understanding what a target company might want from the purpose of structure allows me to be in a meaningful dialogue with them because we have our priorities and needs, which I can articulate, and they have their priorities and needs, which I can try to find uh, a balancing uh, structure that incorporates them. Can you speak to, to these partnerships, the global partnerships that you've helped put in place then? Um, how, did you, how did you find them and how did you end up getting them through to a deal? You know, I can't, I can't imagine those were always easy either. No, they weren't easy at all. Um, they were, they were, it was great. But, you know, um, we realized, one, that it was not timely to raise money into our parent company. We wouldn't get the valuations that we wanted. But that if we targeted small, and we didn't need a lot of capital, but, you know, a couple million here, a couple million there helped us between 2010 and 2020. Although around 2016, we got nicely profitable. And then we did a U.S. quasi-public raise um, it's, it was certified by the SEC. So TerraCycle US, not TerraCycle parent company, TerraCycle Link, but TerraCycle US is actually on uh, sec.gov um, for just the US operations. But a minority interest is sold. It's non-voting stock. It's an economic interest. But we have 6,000 shareholders there. And we raised about $20 million in that. So we're now sitting on meaningful capital uh, about to do a, the first capital raise in the parent company this quarter um, in, in over 10 years. And that will add to our coffers to buy companies and fuel growth over the coming years because we see enormous opportunity. And while we're profitable and have cash, we, we want to have cushion and the ability to um, you know, think big, think bigger because we're already thinking big. Um, you know, when we were $10 million and in close to 20 countries, you could say, well, that's definitely thinking big. Um, you know, we pull off all kinds of things that are small things, but big in, symbol in symbolism as well. For example, the stage of the Tokyo Olympics that all Olympic athletes stood on was made by TerraCycle from waste collected in retailers in Japan. Um, and it was a statement from Japan to the world, but it was a lot to get that through the Tokyo Olympics Committee, the Japan Olympics Committee, and of course, the International Olympics Committee, um, and then to pull it off. Um, so we do lots of big things, lots of small things, audacious. Um, 
your question was, I want to get back to your. Yeah, I'm just curious what what some of the lessons were of of like negotiating with some of these different countries and um and what helped you get these deals through to completion because they're complicated. And you know, and, and every so, country is different as well. Well, yeah, and and every culture is different. You yeah, know? right. In I mean, you know, we the the deal with Japan, a country I've spent a lot of time in over 50 trips over the years before, you know, most of them before TerraCycle, but at least 15, 20 since we opened in Japan in 2014. Um, but I was there in 12 and 13 helping to set that up. Uh, you know, what can I say? We went to, we, 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 we literally thought this would make sense for one of the large Japanese companies to join us. Um, and have an interest. And we went to a great Japanese company called Itochu, and uh, they operate worldwide. Um, we spoke to a couple of others, but Itochu expressed serious interest. Uh, they have their very large broker of plastics, wanted to get more into um, you know, recycled plastics, and particularly as we could get them ocean plastics. Um, they have a strong eco motto. Um, and, and so, but it took you know, almost a year from meetings and pieces to go back and forth, which is not necessarily a long time in, in negotiating with Japanese companies. They had to really get to know us, like us. We had to get to know them. It goes through different channels and levels and patience, um, finding out what that was important to them, finding out what them understanding what was important to us and you know, several negotiations, drafts, pieces. I mean, thorough, but getting it done. Um, in Europe, we talked to the two largest waste management companies in Europe, one uh, being Suez and the other being Veolia, and now they're merging. Uh, Suez, they both were interested. Suez was more interested. We made a deal with Suez and have worked well with them in those five countries, France, UK, Belgium, Netherlands, Sweden. So was it hard? Yeah. Were there, did players change and did terms change? Did perspectives change? Yes. Um, have I worked well with French companies in the past? I have. Was it, um, you know, were, have they dealt with Americans before? Yes. Um, I mean, in some ways, I'm quintessentially a New York American who, who um, you know, is worldly. So I can appreciate their culture and also be direct in ways that they will smile and go, ah, well, he's American, so he's direct. Um, you know, and I think Americans are more direct. The question is, can you do it with heart? Um, and that's an art that I've tried to um, commit myself to um, learning, if not mastering. Is that, do you think that's one of your biggest successes? Like you do not come off as a New Yorker at all. And then at the same time you do, but like you, it's wrapped, it, it is wrapped in heart. It is. And, and it's so different to find like a, a New Yorker who's a lawyer and, and, you know, MBA who, who, you know, but also is starting a social venture network. 40 years ago before it was, or 30 years ago before it was even a thing. Um, I was also CEO for Deepak Chopra for a few years. <laughs> so that, I mean, I, I definitely uh, believe in, in the importance of not just the empirical, but the transcendent that one has to focus on the numbers, but also focus on the purpose um, and listen carefully to what's trying to emerge in attention so that one can not just blast, but, you know, sometimes you have to use a little, call it energetic dynamite to break up something that's static and bring it into a place of here's what's important to you. Here's what's important to me. How do we solve this? Here's my idea and, and try to move it. But I think love is a better force 
than force. Yeah. Um, that doesn't mean that one is asleep at the wheel and it's all kumbaya. It all comes down to, can the numbers work? Can the a purposes align? If you're buying a company and partnering with people, it's like a marriage. Like you're going to be dealing with these people. What? How do you make sure this is right for them as well as right for you? Otherwise, it's not, not right for you if it's not right for the other party. So this is just kind of like somehow seems basic. It does get lost when you're only looking at numbers. And a lot of businesses, strictly analytics, I think we bring Tom for sure is looking at it from multiple perspectives. And we certainly align on, on those. Um, he's very rational. I'm a bit more uh, emotive, um, but I would say he's also aware of things and, and, and tries to read what's going on behind the scenes and thinks six steps ahead as to what the possibilities are before he charts a course. And, and I think that it's, uh, but yes, I'm in that sense, um, I do bring, should we say, um, some softer skills uh, to to help balance some of the more um, empirical training that that is useful, um, but by itself inadequate. Well, and you're you're about ten years too young to be a hippie, but you you kind of have like this hippie lawyer thing going on, which I think has served you. So talk about um, about you and Tom for a second. You know, Tom being the founder, CEO, entrepreneurial for sure. Does he still have that kind of entrepreneurial winging it, shoot from the hip, make it up on the, you know, on the fly, you know, the idea of the moment, the quick shiny or the, the, the big shiny or bright shiny object, does he have that? And how do you work with him in that? Or, or how did you back in the early days when I'm sure it was all there? It's still there. Okay. How do you fire all the time? Um, and he moves incredibly quickly. I mean, just to get a sense of how quickly he is booked solid five days a week from 6 a.m. to at least 6 p.m. And then Asia calls start a couple of days a week. These are half hour meetings. So it's often 20 to 25 meetings a day. Some are one hour mm-hmm. in the midst of it. He's dealing with emails, people coming up to his desk when we're in the office or Skype or chats and things he's responding to razor focused and dealing with all kinds of pieces, hands on, and masterfully able to do that, enjoy his three children, his wife, social relationships, uh, you know, and, and, and enjoy life, his garden, he's into that and building things at his home. So he's, he's sort of a phenomenon. Um, I would say that I often like to sleep on things, even if it's for 10 minutes, <laughs> right? Tom likes quick. Mm-hmm. And I sometimes have to say on things, Tom, I see that, got that. Let me think about this a little bit and come back to you. He goes, but I want to make sure you're okay with it. I go, I I see this, this, and this. There's three things I want to think about. All right. So as long as he knows I got it and I'm thinking about it, I get the space to digest. And generally he's spot on. He, he just gets there faster than I am. Uh, but some of the time I'll say, there's a legal thing here, or I want to check this thing out with employment counsel, or I want to see if we do this here, whether it could involve a securities issue or this and that. But we're lined up with great tax legal advisors. They're all attentive. They appreciate that we're pretty good. And so we don't need a lot of research, which is where they make their money, but surgical high-level experts. And if they start moving into research, I remind them that's not why that wasn't the deal. And I don't (laughs) hire people where I can't work with them in a way that meets our approach generally. And that's not everybody. What I can say is we have really great advisors. They really cheer us on. And 
give us what we need as quickly and as efficiently as possible. That doesn't mean we don't have legal bills, um, but we're pretty efficient with everything. So my relationship with Tom is check my gut, check it out here, empowering unless I have a concern. If I have a, a concern I can articulate immediately, he hears, he goes, got it. I see that. How about we do it this way? I go, great. Um, the other piece is if I don't have it and he's in a rush, that is where there's often a piece of tension because he just sometimes says, I don't have time to come back to this. I said, you don't have time to argue with me that I need a little more time on this one. So let's not argue. Give me the time. He goes, I, when do you need it by? I said, how about an hour? Or I might say tomorrow morning, I really want to think about this and I want to make a couple checks first. And usually he's good with it unless he's pressed because yep. we've got 14 years of doing this. But I mean, he's generally spot on. He wants impeccability, never wants to push a law, never wants to push a thing. He just likes, he loves the for-profit space because unless there's something telling you you can't do it, you can do it, right? right. Yep. Um, and well, and they like to move fast. He likes to, yeah, yeah. The one thing I've learned with entrepreneurial CEOs in that area is that I always say, I love your idea. Let me just go away and think about it for a few minutes. Because as soon as they feel like I love their idea, they don't feel like I'm debating them. They're like, okay, you love my idea. Go away and think about it. And, and it's just that one simple, then I can come back and go, hey, I thought about it. Now I hate your idea. But they don't think I was, you know, debating them right, in, right on the spot. But, um, so it's, yeah. it is exactly, you know, very parallel. And, and, and what I'd say is, um, he's not attached to a single idea. He has so many of them, and we have we have we're incubating about seven businesses. No, they're right they're now. never attached to the idea. They just need it out of their head because their their brain's getting too full of the ideas. They need it to go somewhere else. Yes, exactly. He'll often call me and say, "I just need you to take down some things that we can talk about." Yeah, and we, we do that, and we may, and before his next call, cover three of them. And then he calls back later and says, "Can we resume on the others?" And it's 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 great because often I realize my job is whenever he sends me something, it just allows him to go do his thing. And even if I don't have time to deal with it, I can table it or designate it. He just needs to get it out so it's not lost. And I feel that way with my staff often. I can't, I just put it on their plate and say, you deal or bring it back to me, but I'm not focused on it now. And you have to come back to me. It helps. All right. I want to go back to you, but I want you to give yourself some advice as a 22-year-old. If you were to go back and talk to the Richard Pearl, just finishing your undergrad and getting ready to start off in your career. What advice would you give yourself back then? You know, you know, you know it to be true now, but you wish you'd known when you were 22, 21. I'm going to answer it in a way that I've, with a reference to something I've said before. When people ask me what I do, my answer really is I do Richard Pearl better than anyone I know. <laughs> and it sounds pejorative, pejorative, and it is, but it's more than that. Because as I look back at my 20-year-old self, even my, my slightly younger self, how I leaned in in high school and creating this thing and that thing, whatever I did, there was an essence of me that's the essence of me right here with you right now. And when I catch that, I think when I was in my 20s, I had my doubts. I followed what I wanted to do. I went to work in the peace movement. I went to work that. And then I realized I was preaching to the converted. So I went back into law and business school. And I... I kind of was following it, but if I knew what I think my son and daughter know at this point, trust yourself. And, and to really, it took me a while to get that I was actually smartest when I followed my intuitive skills and to focus on cultivating my intuitive skills. Um, I'll also tell you that mind is good. 
but when getting outside as outside of mind is really important and some people use uh, drugs for that and alcohol for that and that's a nice friend when used correctly meditation's been a great friend for me mm. um, because when i slow down the constant thought after thought and just reach a space of stillness doesn't mean i can't hear a pin drop or answer a mathematical equation i'm just not at the effect of all these thoughts and i got into that not it i would have liked to get into that earlier on i think mm -hmm. i would have had a easier time figuring trying to not just figure things out but sensing that things were unfolding because you can access more confidence when you're not just letting the mind spin so i spent a lot of time in law school and other things cultivating the mind to get credibility and credentials i don't regret it I use it. It's interesting. I think the key piece that you're asking about is what would I say to myself or anyone else? Don't just rely on the mind, cultivate mm. your intuition and learn how to not spend your entire life going from thought to thought, but actually finding out what's, what's true inside you. So you can use it in any situation and, 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 and look at a situation and evaluate it from the perspective of the heart. It's not how do I feel, but what do I sense? Because there's intelligence there that I think affects business decisions as well as negotiations, relationships, and what to do next. That's, it's super, that's super interesting. In, in 180 plus episodes that I've done over three years, that's the first time I've ever heard that as a response. And it's really, really interesting. It's super cool. Richard Pearl, the Chief Administrative Officer for TerraCycle. Thanks so much for joining us on the Second Command Podcast. Really appreciate the time and the ideas today. Thank you for the inquiry and uh, for leading this journey for uh, us to even learn about ourselves as we go through this dialogue with you. Thank you. Nice to meet. Of course, you as well. You've been listening to Second in Command, brought to you by COO Alliance founder Cameron Harold. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to like, share, and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and our other podcast streaming platforms. For more best practices from industry-leading COOs, visit COOalliance.com.